0: This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. So we are uh, far more than most of us realize children of the Reformation. The way that we think about faith, the way that we think about church, the way that we think about the Bible, the fact that we have Bibles. Um, In fact, we have Bibles in such a quantity and at such an ease that we largely take it for granted. Um, All flow from events that happened in the 16th century from events that happened in the 16th century and continue to ripple down through the history of the Western world and the wider world. Uh, Tomorrow, Halloween, October 31st, marks 505 years since a young Catholic monk in Germany walked from his monastery across the town of Wittenberg to the Castle Church. The Castle Church had large doors on it. You have images in your app, images on the screen, and those doors served as a kind of public bulletin board, almost like a a blog, if you will, where people could post things for public discussion. Usually this was uh, topics for academic or theological discussion that were posted on the door the monk nailed a poster of 95 statements or propositions theses to this door his name many of you know was martin luther and the year was 1517 and that act that act of nailing those 95 statements or invitations to discussion that he was putting out there for the religious authorities of the Roman church sparked what we call today the Protestant Reformation. I've been asked a handful of times by people checking out the church with, uh, coming with one angle or another after a message on a Sunday, hey, are you Reformed? And the cheeky guy in me always wants to say, of course, and so are you if you're not Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. Because we're all children of these events that happen. It's hard for us to imagine a people so serious about their faith, so serious about where they stand before God, that their beliefs would drive a hundred plus years of discussions and councils and arguments and debates And armed skirmishes, full-on battles, executions, beheadings, drownings, waterboarding, we didn't come up with that. It's hard for us to imagine because largely, we just don't care that much. We just don't care that much. But Martin Luther's actions that day led to a decree from Pope Leo the 10th on June 12, 1520 just three years later. One of the lines I love in this decree from Pope Leo the 10th says arise O Lord and judge thy cause a wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. Luther didn't mind that at all. In this decree of excommunication the Pope calls on Luther, who was a Catholic monk, as I said, in Germany, to denounce at least 41 of his challenge statements that he nailed to that door, to recant statements that he'd made since then, or be excommunicated from the church. Hey, in our day, like we quit church all the time. We're like, whoop de doo I'd almost like somebody to excommunicate me, then I wouldn't feel guilty. But in their day, to be excommunicated from the church was to be put outside of the saving power of God. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of people in our day today would say, well, whoop-de-doo, I'll deal with that, you know, when I get close to death. It's sort of the casual, apathetic, nonchalant attitude we have today, but it was a big deal. It was also a day in which church authorities would show up and knock on your door and arrest you. And then imprison you and maybe torture you, and possibly execute you. But Luther, for reasons partly stemming from his personality, and just personal constitution, and partly stemming from the deep divine conviction he had about the work and calling in his life, was not worried by Pope Leo's decree. In fact, he responded to it on December 10th by burning it publicly in the square at Wittenberg. In a sense saying, I accept your challenge. I accept your challenge. By 1521, Luther was in front of the authorities giving an answer at the Diet or Deet of Worms, just an official assembly where he was having to answer for himself. Here was his inevitable eventual reply After they've said, look, you've said a bunch of things, could you simplify it for us? He said, here it is, plain and simple. Unless I am convicted of error by the Scriptures, and my conscience is taken captive by God's Word, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us or open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Soon after that, Luther was kidnapped by friends of his and a lord of that area in Germany in away, where he was protected for a few years, translated the New Testament um, into the German language. I want to give you a little context, though, for how Luther got to this place where he's making this statement on April 17th of 1521. In 1505, Luther was traveling as a young man, and he's traveling in a massive thunderstorm, right? And he's in a convertible. I'm just kidding, right? So he's walking, and lightning strikes, and it strikes so close to him that it knocks him down. And Luther is so scared, he cries out, to one of the saints and says, God save me and I'll become a monk. His parents thought that was neither a winning proposition for Luther or God. Luther was headed to a study of law, but he took that seriously and he became an Augustinian monk. Within just a few years, he was a brilliant intellect and a very, very sensitive moral man. And even though he went right on through his what we would consider master's degree and doctor's degree and was teaching the New Testament, he was overcome by his own sin. He felt this massive weight every day before God of his own guilt that no matter what he did, he could not assuage the righteous wrath of a holy God. And Luther would say, if anyone... If anyone could have been made righteous by their works, it was me. And he's just about right. There was nothing Luther wouldn't deny himself. There was no pain Luther wouldn't go through. There was nothing he would do without. There was nothing he would add to his daily regimen. In order to try to get rid of this sense of guilt before God, Luther knew he was a sinner. Well in 1436, just a few decades before all this is happening, we have the printing press which many of you are aware of, invented by Johann Gutenberg and all of a sudden you could print and distribute things and part of what happened when Luther nails his poster to the door that was not in the common language of the German people, the vast majority of people walking by could not read that. Luther was educated and he was writing to educated people to have a formal discussion about something. Luther had no intention of starting, quote-unquote, a different church or a different denomination or Protestantism, the protesters. He was seeking to, as the name would give way, reform what he saw as excesses and heresies of the Church of Rome in his day. But people got a hold of these 95 these statements and translated them into German and then they were printed and distributed this is around the same time, not when this is happening but a couple of decades before the Spanish Inquisition is happening 1478, Michelangelo has finished the Sistine Chapel in 1512 so this is what's going on sort of around this part of the world at this time in 1515 in 1515 Luther is teaching the book of Romans and still struggling with guilt and despair before God. He's in Romans chapter 1, and he runs across the passage I'm going to read to you now. Luther's life was forever changed by it, and in a sense, the history of the world and certainly the Western world was changed. Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. I'll read it, give a little background to it, and then we'll come back to it and work through it and see Luther's own comments about this. Paul writes to the church in Rome and says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel— Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For, says verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, Luther was wrestling with this. He was wrestling hard with this in a way that you and I just rarely do with Scripture. And Luther said during this time, his, his mentor just said, Luther, just love God. He said, But I don't love God. I hate God. How can I love a God who, in his justice and righteousness, condemns sinners who are but products of moral deficiency? See, Luther knew he couldn't, he couldn't simply choose to love God. He, he couldn't simply choose to, to feel worshipful toward God. And when Luther ran across a verse like 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, justice is another translation there, what he heard was that attribute or characteristic of God by which he judges sinful people and condemns them. And Luther could not get out of from under that but he stayed with it he stayed faithful he wrestled with the text he would go on later to say i beat on paul and i beat on paul and i beat on paul and i beat on paul until by the grace and the mercy of god paul yielded the beauty and the power of the gospel to me and i was forever redeemed saved and changed Oh, oh! I long for you and I to have the kind of intensity for God and His Word and His world that instead of just skipping over difficult passages, we would chew on them and chew on them and pray and chew and pray and chew and pray, and chew and pray until they give up the beauty and power of God that they contain. There are many places in the Bible that will not easily yield their transformational fruit to the casual, uncaring reader. We have to do some work. We have to do prayerful work. And we have to stay with it, throwing ourselves on the mercy of God until by the power of the Holy Spirit, the text is illuminated. It shines forth in our hearts. Luther would go on to say this. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God, when you hear Luther say justice of God, just see righteousness in our current translations. The justice of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. And in that, Paul kept wrestling because he kept hearing the the purchase the, the person who is righteous in all their ways, righteous in their actions, righteous in their moral standing before God, is able to live a faithful life. So Martin had him confused. He had him backwards. He said, I began to understand that in this verse, the justice or righteousness of God is that by which the just person lives— by a gift of God. That is by faith. That it is the faith that makes possible the declaration of righteousness before God. I began to understand that this verse means the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice. Or in other words, it is the justice or righteousness which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once, I felt as if I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. This is 1515. Luther's life is forever changed, and so much Of human history will be as a result of that as well. So, 1515, by 1517, you have a character show up in Luther's region named Johann Tetzel or John Tetzel selling indulgences on behalf of the church in Rome. Now, this was not new. Selling indulgences was simply uh, sort of you buying a little chit that said, hey, you're forgiven. Of all your sins right now because you purchased this. And then they sort of upped it a little bit and said, not only can you be forgiven, but we can also forgive your dead relatives who are stuck in purgatory, yearning and longing and moaning to be sprung out of there to go to heaven. So maybe you had like a, a, a gold level indulgence and a platinum if you did the platinum you could spring some relatives and maybe you had a grumpy uncle you didn't want to spring so you didn't care you're like enjoy purgatory the sale of indulgences had started during the crusades it was a great and convenient way to finance war at a time where people were very much aware of their guilt before god of the weight of that guilt before a righteous god and of the fact that they are indeed going to die as every single one of us in here will. And they're going to stand before God and before His judgment. So indulgences had been around four to five hundred years already. Now, it's only recent that they'd really upped it and said, uh, we we can not only assure you of forgiveness, but we can assure you that your relatives will get out of purgatory. And Tetzel's saying, which has become infamous now, is as soon as the coin in the coffer rings— The soul from purgatory springs. Catchy, right? It infuriated Luther. It infuriated Luther. Luther, having come to faith in Christ through the Scriptures, and then drunk deeply of the Scriptures, recognized in an instant that the church could not forgive sins. That you and I cannot purchase forgiveness of sins by monetary means, Or any other way. And unless we be too hard on the Roman Catholic Church of that day for selling indulgences, I submit to you that we do the exact same thing in every congregational Protestant church that has cheap membership. Providing false assurance to men and women whose lives show no evidence or fruit at all of being regenerate, born-again followers of Jesus. But we don't care, hey, right? As long as we get bigger. So let's set a low bar in membership. Let's just welcome people in. Uh, Maybe we've even got the the old model. They just walk down the aisle, sign a little card. We line up, we greet them, and we give them massive amounts of false assurance. Yes, you're one of us. We don't know you. We haven't seen any fruit of your life. We've not heard your testimony. We've not heard you express your understanding of the gospel. But we'll sell you a little indulgence here. We'll say, come on in. You're one of us. May God have mercy on the church in our day, so pathetically, theologically weak and cowardly. It helps us to know history. So in the Protestant Reformation, basically you find four questions that kind of bubble up to the top. A couple of primary questions and a couple of secondary that naturally flow out of those primary questions. The two primary ones were this. How is a person made right before God? How is it that a person is saved, redeemed, forgiven of their sin, reconciled to God? How is it that a person is made right with God? The second primary question was on the issue of authority. Where does religious authority lie, right? It wasn't just that the Reformers believed in Scripture, so did the Church of Rome. It just wasn't the only source of authority. There was the authority of Scripture. There was the authority of tradition, church tradition. There was the authority of the church primarily as the Pope speaks ex officio. And they were all on the same level. So you've got those two primary questions. How is a person made right with God? What is the ultimate authority, religiously speaking? And then out of that flow naturally two secondary questions. What is the church? What actually constitutes the church of Jesus Christ? And what is the essence of Christian life? Because in Luther's day, if you were serious about your faith, you became a monk, or none, if you were serious about pursuing God and knowing God in greater and greater degrees, or if you were serious about serving God, you became a priest or a town friar like Jake. That's <laughs> a little Wednesday night joke, but um, and everybody else, everybody else were just ordinary people, just out there in the ordinary world, you know, in what we would describe as secular vocations secular vocations. But all this gets turned upside down. Now, it wasn't that the embers of Reformation weren't already hot. It wasn't that this little German monk dropped down out of heaven, nailed some stuff to a door, and changed the world by himself. Right? The winds of Reformation of change we're blowing strong in England and Scotland, and France, and Germany, and Switzerland, all across the Western Church and Western Europe. And if Luther's pen, as it were, is the pen that ignited the Reformation, John Calvin's pen is the one that would organize it and explain what it is. That these people who were giving their lives to say, we've got to get back to the Bible, came to believe. We're going to frame this around five solas. Five solas. Some of you will be familiar with this. This is just a, a Latin phrase. We won't finish these this morning. So you've got to come back for part two. In deference to those of you with little children, by you, right now. So we're going to get started part one today. We'll finish part two next Sunday, But the solas were these distinguishing characteristics that that, um, really defined the Reformers as opposed to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and gave birth to Protestantism, to Protestantism, to everyone in any church who believes what they believe as Christians who are not Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. This is a stream from which you come. The first is this, sola scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. This was the early battle cry of the Reformers. Scripture alone. Don't give me your church tradition. Don't give me your saints. Don't give me your papal decrees. The Bible alone. Now, they weren't Neanderthals. They regularly read and quoted The great Christian thinkers and theologians of history found them deeply informative and authoritative to the degree that they lined up with Scripture. But when a choice has to be made, it is made on the side of the revealed will of God in the Bible. In the Bible. And the Reformers were part of that great few generations that many of gave their lives so we could have copies of the Bible in our own language. William Tyndale gave his life for that. Thomas Cranmer gave his life for that. John Wycliffe didn't give his life for that. He did that and died, but they were so aggravated that they, he had done it, that they dug up his body, burned it, and threw the ashes in the river. What a way to go, right? And many, many, many ordinary men and women gave their lives over this idea of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, I'm going to have a number of quotes here. I know they're a little bit longer. I know some of of, uh, them will cause us to think, but I think they're valuable in us seeing how they wrestled with this and what they came up with because in Romans 1, 14 through 17, we we see Paul saying, man, I want to come to you and I want to share the gospel. I'm obligated, I'm propelled, compelled by the call of God in my life to everyone I can, Jew, Gentile alike, because I'm not ashamed of it because in it is the power of God. In the verbally spoken, preached, Gospel of Jesus Christ that says, you and I, apart from Christ, are sinners, still in our sin, guilty before God, storing up God's wrath for us toward the coming day of judgment. And there's nothing we can do to get out from under it. And yet, God has done it. God has sent His Son. To take on our sin, to become sin, though he knew no sin, so that you and I, through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit and God's good delight, might become the righteousness of Christ himself. Paul said, I believe it. I come to proclaim it because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. When something is revealed, That means it's there already, but the curtain is pulled back. You can see it. You understand it now. And it's a righteousness that's by faith. So when you're pleading your case with someone or certainly before the Lord, you're not saying, but I do this and but I did that and I'm this. You said, I plead Christ and him crucified. Upon that I stand. Not me. Christ and Him crucified. Mine by the grace of God. Through faith, through belief in Christ, through trusting Him, allegiance to Him and Him alone. And all of this they're finding in Scripture. Solo scriptura, Scripture alone. Luther writes, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force. For faith must come freely without compulsion. Now this is not a day where they would restrain you by force to believe this or that. Now listen to what Luther says by way of testimony. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, And wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, reminding us of the farmer who plants good seed and then goes to bed, and somehow, in ways he doesn't understand, it starts coming up in Mark 4. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor Ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. This is why C.H. Spurgeon would go on to say, the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible is like a lion. It doesn't need defending. It just needs to be released from its cage. The Word of God does the work of God and the people of God by the Spirit of God. To the glory of the Son of God. Where did they get such crazy ideas? Well, it was not only out of their own transformed lives as they came to Scripture, and God taught them and God changed them, but it was out of the, the witness of Scripture itself. Passages that are familiar to many of us today, like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed, is inspired, is, is breathed out by God Himself and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every work, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is an end to which our study of Scripture is designed. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Though the Scriptures are certainly written through the personality and voice and education level of the individual biblical writers— It is the witness of the Bible itself that none of what we find in Scripture today came about by that person's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a beautiful picture? They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is why in time, and I'll say a little bit about this, more about this next week, this is why uh, Luther uh, looked at the sacraments or the ordinances of the Roman Catholic Church. There were seven. There are seven today. And he said, this is foolishness. I only see two in Scripture. I only see two. He said, they had to be introduced by Christ and be exclusively Christian. And as he fed the sacraments through that filter, only two remained: communion and baptism. This is why Luther said, I see no prohibition on clergy with regards to marriage. And so Luther got married. And other people, other clergy, pastors, priests, monks began to marry. This was unheard of. This was not how the world worked. Luther talked about what a, what a change marriage is. He said, one day you're going about your own business and the next day you wake up and there's a pair of pigtails on the pillow beside you. They were not there just a few short weeks before. He said, it's a stunning thing that takes a bit of getting used to. But he would come to deeply love and cherish Catherine, his wife, for the rest of his life. Swiss reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, said the word of God is so sure and strong that if God wills, all things are done the moment he speaks his word. For it is so living and powerful that things both rational and irrational are fashioned and dispatched and constrained in conformity with its purpose. Zwingli had no issue with the virgin conception of Jesus and Mary. He said, thus is the word of God. May it be done as God declares it. Zwingli went on to say the whole teaching of the gospel is a sure demonstration, listen, because some of you need to hear this this morning, that what God has promised will certainly be performed. For the gospel is now an accomplished fact. The one who was promised to the patriarchs and the whole human race has now been given to us. And in him, we have the assurance Of all our hope. Do you know that this morning? That in Christ you have the assurance of all your hope, that sickness can't take it away, that fractured relationships can't take it away, financial ruin can't take it away, disease can't take it away the economy can't, politicians can't, even death can't take it away. Christ defeated death itself. John Calvin, French theologian and pastor and the great reformer of Geneva, I know Geneva's not in France, it's a longer story, we'll talk about it next week, said, let this be a firm principle. No other word is to be held as the word of God and given place as such in the church than what is contained first in the Law and the Prophets, then in the writings of the Apostles. And the only authorized way of teaching in the church is by the prescription and standard of His Word. Of His Word. To Luther, to Zwingli, to Calvin, to others, the church was Word-centered, not sacrament-centered. There's a reason that congregational churches and Baptist churches historically have had uh, quote-unquote, the pulpit in the center of the room and the message at the center of the service. Because we believe that the Word of God is central to the life of the church. Calvin goes on out of his sermons on the epistle to the Ephesians and says, if our Lord is so good to us as to have his doctrine still preached to us, we have by that a sure and infallible sign that he is near at hand to us. Do you know that? Do you know that when we enter into this significant time and God's word is presented and preached over us, that Christ himself is present making his appeal to us? That he seeks our salvation. That he calls us to himself as though he spoke with open mouth. And that we see him personally before us. Jesus Christ holds out his arms to receive us as often as the gospel is preached to us. To some of you, he's saying this morning, will you have me? You're a lot like Luther. You've known about me for a long time. Maybe you've even known the scriptures. But I don't know you. There's never been a time where you've repented of your sin, where you've come alongside in agreement with God about who you are and thrown yourself on me and found my mercy, my grace. Finally this morning, John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, theologian, and pastor, said very succinctly and simply, the Scriptures of God are my only foundation and substance in all matters of weight and importance. What a word we need to hear again this morning. In a day and a time where our culture has gone completely sideways. And it's telling us and it's telling our children and it's telling our grandchildren that to disagree with them is not only to be wrong, but to be dangerous and evil. And we answer back and say, the Scriptures of God are the only foundation and substance in all matters of weight and importance. And I will not submit to what you say I must believe when it runs contrary to the revealed will of God in Scripture. Not only will I not submit to it, but I will not submit out of a faith and understanding that says what God has revealed, He has revealed for my good and my joy. He has revealed for your good and your joy. If you would wrestle with it and come to accept it. Sola Scriptura is just the first of five solas that changed the world and lead right up onto this property in both of these doors, right down front, right up to this place where we sit, where you sit, with Bibles around you, with them on your phones, on your iPads, with Scripture being declared to you, preached before you in your own language, with communion being offered to you as baptized believers. Not just the bread— as it was offered until Luther's time. And Luther and Calvin and others said, no, no, there is no curtain between the ordained and the lay. We all get and we all need the bread and the wine, the bread and the juice, Jesus' body and his blood. Next week, we'll finish. Let's stand. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.